With me on the show today, no Ray, but I've got a uh, guest, Donnie McClurkin. Donnie and I go way back. Um, he's an Aussie. Uh, now lives in the United States, lives in Oregon, has been there eight years, I think. Big thinker, Donnie. Um, called him up on Zoom today, and we had a bit of a chat about the state of things in America. Uh, following on from my uh, thoughts last week around is the United States failed, a failed state or just a failing state? Donnie posted something on Facebook last week, unrelated to that, but um, well, unrelated to my show, but with, with a similar sort of feel to his post, and I thought it would be good to bring him on. Um, I'll let him talk a little bit about himself so you know where uh, he's coming from. I, it was kind of shocking to get him on Zoom, though, this morning. The last time I saw Donnie, Eight, uh, no, maybe nine or ten years ago, he slept on my lounge one night on his way traveling to or from somewhere, and he had uh, long hair, maybe even dreadlocks and a beard. And he got on Zoom today, and he's all short, short grey hair, shirt, you know, beardless, shirt on, looked like a looked like a, a grown up. So that was uh, kind of shocking. But um, anyway, really interesting chat, I thought. So uh, here he is, Donnie McClurkin. Donnie. Hey Cam, look at you! Oh, hi, mate. Short hair, no That's beard, a little bit of grey. Mate, you 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 look like a you look like your the father of the person I last saw eight years ago. Jesus, it's probably it's. It, I obviously looked a lot different then. I must have had long hair, huh? That's my memory of you: long hair, yeah, maybe yeah. a bit of a bit of a beard. Uh, yeah. That'd be right. I was in my, I was in, in a certain stage of life. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Uh, you know, I, my last memory of seeing you was when I tried to drive you to the airport and my BMW ran out of petrol halfway there. So, um, look, let's get into the, the nitty gritty of this man. Um, I, I uh, read your, I think a Facebook post you did a week or two ago about the state of things in the US. And um, as I said to you, I, I was just starting a sort of a, a, a mini series on this show about like a topic that's been on my mind for a few years now. And I've, I've had a range of discussions with people about it. Um, is the US a failed state? Is it just failing? Am I overreacting? Is it all just fine? And they're just going through a bad spot. And, um, you know, I think getting your perspective is going to be interesting because you are a an Aussie who B has lived over there for eight years. 
Um, and you're a you're a you're a political guy. You think a lot of uh, you think a lot, and you think deeply about uh, politics and society. And you're a, you're a progressive thinker. So um, I wanted to get your perspective as a I guess somebody who's experienced both countries and and thinks deeply about it. But before we get into that, tell tell me and tell our listeners I guess what what you're doing these days. That what's what's happening with the Post Growth Institute. Yes, so I had a really strange departure following a PhD that sort of looked at the global impacts of emerging technology, um, it's specifically nanotechnology, Uh, and I I went into uh, economics from there, and it was a bit strange because I've got no formal background in economics, I've never in fact sat in on an economics lecture, Um, and now I find myself uh, an affiliate professor of economics with an office at a university and running an economics institute. But we're a little different in that way. We, I guess, uh, always have been. And, uh, and, and the, the way that we look at economics is really from a, a sense of what does our gut tell us? You know, this is uh, obviously the, the bullshit factor that we're talking on today. And so um, I was just sensing a lot of uh, BS that was getting put out by the economics profession and, and a lot of cognitive dissonance, you know, sort of these feelings of like, hold on a second, capitalism's going to save us and the rising tide lifts all boats and we can just keep growing and all of these sorts of things. And I kept looking around uh, at life and, and was not seeing the fruits of that play out. In fact, I was seeing uh, increasing environmental problems. I was seeing uh, increasing anxiety in communities. I was seeing wealth accumulation, not necessarily equaling greater happiness. And uh, so I, I set about... With, uh, with Dick Smith's impetus years back, you might remember he, he put out this thing of a million dollars for a young person under 30 who can come up with an alternative to uh, economic growth. And so I got nine other people from around the world, uh, half of us were under the age of 30 and said, let's uh, put together a collective, sort of a, a bit of a way to um, stick it to Dick in, in terms of uh, saying, look, this shouldn't, the whole point is, is about collective responses rather than uh, individualistic money-making um, approaches if you're going to challenge growth. And so these nine other folks came along for the ride because I was working on a film at that time out of Colorado called Growth Busters. This guy, Dave Gardner, was running for local mayor in Colorado Springs on a zero growth platform. And so I helped him produce that film. And these 10 people were, that we assembled were going to be the Growth Busters. It didn't quite work out with uh, Dave, and so we spun off and became the Post Growth Institute. And ever since then, we've been looking at what comes after uh, capitalism. How do we thrive within ecological limits? And uh, and working on the three different layers of the macro economy. You know, how do you move beyond capitalist accumulation to something where money and power circulates? Um, that level of the micro economy. How do you have purpose-driven uh, businesses so that you can actually get the stuff done that we need and not create a whole lot of externality stuff that, uh, that causes a lot of the stress in our system and actually inefficiency under the guise of efficiency. And then the community economy, that third layer that's so important. Uh, how do we ensure there's greater reciprocity? How do we care for each other? How do we highlight the importance of that layer? And we've been working on those things ever since. And uh, especially during COVID have just been booming in terms of the number of people interested. And gosh, I think in the last week we've added, five new people to the team. So it's just, uh, it's expanding. The Post Growth Institute is uh, growing. Wow, man. Do you do a podcast about this? (laughs) 
Not not yet. That's one area we haven't uh, delved we, into. We have, but... Okay, we have to do this. Dude, seriously. <laughs> Look at, you know, I, um, I have spent a lot of time over the last few years thinking about these sorts of things. I came out with a book earlier this year called The Psychopath Epidemic, which I started to write a book um, six or seven years ago through the impetus of a mate of mine, Tony Kynaston, who's a very wealthy uh, investor in Sydney now, um, but he's also a, a lefty. Um, um, and, he, and, and he sort of gave me the impetus to sit down and write a book on political stuff that I'd been talking about for years. And as, as part of my exploration of trying to figure out what the, the why things are going so wrong around the world in many ways, I came to the conclusion that it's because psychopaths end up in control of a lot of our institutions and organisations. Long story, but, um, you know, thinking a lot about capitalism and uh, what's going on with it. And, and, you know, when I end up in conversations with people, because I, I, you know, I was talking to a guy the other day in Sydney and uh, I, I, I said something about being a com- how I'm a communist. And he said, no, you're not. You're not a communist. You run an investing show. I go, yeah, well, when I say I'm a communist, I mean, I, what I'm saying is um, ideally I would like to see the human race see our civilization get to a point where we have a more advanced socioeconomic system where we that's engineered to take care of people and uh, provide incentives for and motivation to work and be an entrepreneur and all of those things but at the same time that has built into it the um impetus to look after people uh do a better job of of uh, looking after the environment, uh, so so you know, life on this planet is uh, sustainable long term, and looking after our brothers and sisters, and um, you know, figuring out how did we how do we how do we engineer a more prosperous, happy, sustainable civilization for all humans on the planet. Now, my shorthand code for that is communism. Uh, what it actually looks like. When we get there, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. How, how do we get there? I'm not sure. But I think we need to be having that conversation um, because capitalism isn't sustainable long-term. I think people have increasingly become aware of that. Uh, post the GFC 10, 12, year, well, 12 years ago, um, you know, I think COVID's another example of that. You know, and, and America's a classic example of that, how a country that has been the dominant economic and uh, military and commercial superpower of the world for the last seven years crumbled like a house of cards when a, uh, a virus comes along and in fact did uh, a much worse job. I think it's fairly objective point of view, did a much worse job than nearly every other country on the planet in dealing with it. And, um, you know, when, when I talk to Americans and they blame it on Trump, you know, particularly Democrats will just blame it on Trump. I've been trying to point out for the last few years, and I remember pointing this out when Bush was president, you know, over a decade ago, that um, these guys aren't, uh, didn't, didn't arise through some sort of magic. They are, the fact that they became president in the first place is symptomatic of the system. They're a, they're a um, in my view, they're a, a symptom 
of the problem, not the problem itself. Anyway, I, I just, I'm really excited by what you were talking about there. And I think we need to, we need to talk more. We need to have this conversation more. So talk to me about um, your perspective of Oregon um, at the moment, man. Like uh, when you moved there, I imagine it was a very different place to what it is now. Yes and no. I mean, I think as you sort of said, there are a lot of root causes and then there are symptoms. And I think a lot of what we're seeing in Oregon right now are symptoms um, rather than an actual change in the, the nature of Oregon itself. So, I mean, I'm four hours away from, from what's happening in Portland at the moment, but a lot of people from the small town that I live in are, are up in Portland right now providing support um, for people involved in, in some of the direct nonviolent action that's happening there. And, uh, and I mean, I think that's, that's obviously where the focus on Oregon is right now. So I'll, I'll stay with that. And, and I think it's really interesting because I'm getting a lot of the reports from friends who are there, who I trust, whose perspectives I trust, um, that are saying, look, first of all, as you would expect, a lot of the mainstream media is, is blowing this out in terms of just the physical size. And I remember being involved in refugee action, um, protesting in, in Australia, Australia, and, and I saw the media do that as well. I saw far left um, activists come in often and cause a bit of disruption and the media will just focus the attention on that and that's what makes the headlines. Um, what I'm hearing from good friends of mine is that, first of all, you're dealing with a very small geographical location where a lot of the, uh, the, the action is happening. The second thing is uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of uh, action is non-violent. Um, it's... Uh, uh, it's frontline, you know, people are gearing up to respond to the aggressive um, fascist-like behaviour of, of the government um, in terms of some of the things that you outlined in your last episode around a failed state. And, and I mean, it's, it's frightening stuff, you know, for people who are on the frontline, people who were just living in Portland in areas near federal buildings and things like that, that all of a sudden found themselves in the middle of, of, uh, of challenges. When I say all of a sudden, that's not really quite accurate in the sense that the Black Lives Matters um, movement had really picked up steam by the time that things in Portland uh, 50 to 55 days ago or so uh, really started to uh, accelerate. So there was, the country was already on edge on the top of COVID. Um, we have a, well, I don't know how to judge this governor of the state, Kate Brown, um, but I would say, I mean, she certainly much more progressive than, uh, than, than the federal administration and, and has, in word at least, um, been supportive of, uh, of peaceful action. But you always get that, that challenge associated with any state, right, whether it's a state government or, uh, or the state more broadly and the state you know, extending to military and, uh, and police and other apparatus. It's, it's a tricky situation. And I always come back to capitalism. You've got a system that's based on class and power uh, inequities. And whenever that happens, you're going to have uh, abuses like your book probably outlined, right? You get this detaching effect that happens with those in power. Um, and it is that absolute power. It does corrupt absolutely. We, we see that even in the studies in economics, the way that as people get wealthier, their empathy reduces right, that distancing effect. I remember it in Australia, going to a very private, wealthy uh, school um, of, of largely white 
uh, males, all boys school. And I remember seeing actions happening from some of the wealthiest individuals in that school who were alumni, who were then leaders of political parties and all sorts of things. And just being shocked at how distant what they were doing was from the actual um, ethic that was supposedly being uh, promoted by this Jesuit school that I went to. So back in Oregon, I think we, we've seen that. We've got this, again, it's this cognitive dissonance where you've got a, a state which is very much split. The, the whole right-hand side, two-thirds, in fact, of the state is very conservative uh, in its average political leaning. And then you've got everything to the west of a certain line, which is progressive, in, in particular Portland, which makes up a big number of the uh, big percentage of the state population. So whenever you've got that, it's sort of like a microcosm for the US. You've got this incredible divide, which is a hotbed for a government that um, in the last 12 months, for example, we've seen the Republican Party here at the state level walk out and refuse to come back to, to the sitting um, of the legislature on issues of climate change. So bills would get put forward by the Democratic majority that needed a, a certain uh, number of votes in, in the state Senate and people went missing. Like they actually, and then the governor put out a call for the um, for the sheriffs to go and round up the uh, the Republican senators to vote on climate change. So there's hostility here. Um, we've, we've, it goes all the way back to the libertarian leanings of the West Coast as well, and uh, and stuff that you might be aware of in terms of the Bureau of Land Management and and standoffs that have happened with uh, individuals around gun rights, around uh, First and Second Amendment rights, about land rights, all sorts of things. So. It is, in many ways, a Wild West. It's got a history of genocide, a, a deep, deep history that many white Oregonians are just waking up to around racism. Um, and, and the last thing I'll say about this is uh, the stat that I, I recall, I might be getting this a little out, but I think it's right, is that about 100 years ago, one, maybe even less than that, one in four males in Oregon, in the state of Oregon, were members of the KKK one in four, and that's only a couple of generations back. So you've got a really interesting setup here when you've got protests happening around Black Lives Matter, um, when you've got that backdrop of, of a state that is, uh, that is in conflict with the federal uh, government uh, in terms of the, the, the back and forth there, and then you've got this, I don't know how visible it is to people outside of the US, but the divide here around Black Lives Matter versus Back the Blue, which stands for you know, supporting the police, is so deep. And it runs very clearly along progressive and conservative lines. So that's sort of the, that's the way I'm seeing Oregon play out at the moment in the federal and international picture. As an Aussie, um, who's lived over there for a, a substantial amount of time now. Um, what do you think the major differences are between the political climate in the United States and the political climate in Australia, where, again, we have a very conservative, uh, fundamentalist Christian prime minister here now? You wouldn't have you wouldn't have been here when uh, he came to power, but um, you, I'm sure you, you know, keep in touch and you understand the, the, the general gist, not that much different from Johnny Howard. Um, 
do you have any do you have any insights on the the major differences between the two countries politically? I would say that the U.S. is sort of five to ten years ahead of where Australia will be. Uh, I don't see a lot of major differences in terms of the politics if you put them on those trend lines. Um, a couple of differences that do come to mind. I mean, we sort of need to go back to the the founding whether it's documents whether it's philosophies etc so in the us you have have those those founding fathers as they're referred to and 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 interpretations of the constitutions and then the amendments and it's it's still something that i'm engaging with here is understanding how deeply the notion of self-sovereignty um, of freedoms without responsibilities uh, sits. And I think that plays out at the, at the political level. Whereas Australia, you know, has that interesting, I do think it has a much more egalitarian approach. Uh, I think it, it, it has demonstrated the ability to band together a little more during times of crisis uh, in the last 20 years that I'm, I'm familiar with. I think there's been a little bit more bipartisanship on display, although I've seen that creep again in Australia over the last 20 years. But I mean, here in the US, if I don't know if you, you were ever watching this, but I remember the late Senator John McCain, when he voted against um, the, the uh, I'm trying to remember if it was the taxes or that was, it was the healthcare related bill. Um, and I mean, it was considered very, very almost sacrilegious right for someone uh to to cross the floor in that way as a casting vote and and i mean you know that's that's similar in australia but it certainly um you know wouldn't be considered so outrageous in the country that in australia and talking federal politics here of course has a has a different makeup too because we have independents um that, that play often a swing vote and, and the green party that have played historically in the last 15 years are to a lesser or greater extent, um, a different uh, different role than happens here, where there's just no third party and, and there's the occasional independent and, and people like Bernie Sanders, but uh, they really don't um, wield a lot of power as uh, as a separate voting block. And they're certainly not the Peter Andron style um, independent that we saw in Australia, where um, people who often go independent are, are really interested in sort of seeing, okay, what have you got to offer across the different party lines? So I think there's a different set of values that, uh, that get reflected. Um, and I do think that the corporate nature of the US, especially the revolving door, which obviously Australia has seen that both across Liberal and Labor, and in particular, the Labor Party um, that has, has had so many corruption scandals over so long. But there's there's a lot more to be said here about how easily uh, corporate executives will slot into treasury roles um, at the federal level in the US, uh, other senior um, equivalent ministerial roles, cabinet positions, secretary positions here in the US. Um, there seems to be a lot less interest in my perspective in conflict of interest law. I mean, you only have to look at what's happening with the presidency here and how many, in my opinion, flagrant abuses of conflict of interest law have happened um, where a president can basically um, put money into his own pockets uh, through uh, political decisions and, and things that are associated with running the apparatus of, uh, of the executive arm of government. So 
I think there's a, there's a difference there. But like I said, I, I think it's also just a matter of time until Australia heads that way. And again, I come back to capitalism. You're going to have the same... It's why other countries um, are... I mean, if you even just take France, right? And, and, and France is obviously a capitalistic nation with more socialist tendencies, but it, it's on the same spectrum. And it's just going to take longer for that shift to happen, but it's still an inevitable... Um, trending that, that sort of is aligned with any neoliberal uh, trending. But I think that comparing, looking at how capitalistic the US is, you can get very good glimpses of why the political situation is what it is and, and sort of a window into where Australia may be heading. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, and um, as I think I pointed out in the last episode, the reason... There are, there are several reasons why I pay much, so much attention to what's happening to, in the United States politically. And part of it is, of course, that they are the uh, reigning economic and military superpower of the world. And when uh, they get a cold, the rest of the world sneezes, but, uh, or the other way around, when they sneeze, the rest of the world catches a cold. Um, but also because Australia is, does tend to follow, is moving uh, in that direction. And I think you're right. It is the it is the forces of capitalism that are moving us uh, down that path. Um, you know, it's it's straight up Marxist theory, right? That uh, when you have people in a country that have a huge amount of wealth, they're going to use that wealth to get control of uh, the legal apparatus, the political apparatus, in order to protect their wealth uh, from being taken away as a result of a class struggle. And, uh, you know, more often than not, they're going to succeed without the advent of a, a revolution of some kind, political or military. Over time, you would expect that the people with the wealth will manage to get more and more power over the democratic apparatus in order to protect their asset base and um it gets it, which then leads to a, an increasing uh concentration of wealth uh, in the hands of the the elite the one percenters as we call them today um so based on your experience in the us uh and, and what you see happening around you do you think um, can you see a, a way out of it for the United States? I mean, I, I gather from the post that you did the other week that you tend to agree with me that it's a, a failing state, if not a failed state already. Well, I think there, there are so many people in this country who are interested in what a very different system might look like and feel like and, and still are holding on to that hope where I think there's denial is that, and it comes back to your earlier point about trends in the economy and how capitalism sits underneath so much of what we see in terms of that political capture being a self-perpetuating thing in terms of power and money is that there's no way around the inevitability of capitalism's collapse. And given the U.S. Is, has been at the forefront of capitalism 
it's why we're going to see that collapse um, happen in this country. In my opinion, there's absolutely no way out of this. And the closest we get to there being a way out of this, we're already seeing, which is the, the US Fed doing everything it can. Uh, and those unfamiliar with, uh, with how federal banks, uh, reserve banks work, there's essentially, you know, the Federal Reserve Bank in the US is, as with most central banks, seen as sort of a backstop for the banks, right? So the banker of the banks. And what happened in the last three or four months was pretty interesting because the Fed was already doing some pretty heavy damage work last year in terms of trying to keep a flailing economy that was being presented as a booming economy, record low unemployment rate. They were already showing signs of needing to try to prop things up, which has been the reality since 2008. And I'll, I'll get to that in just a second as to why. But then they took a really unprecedented move in the last few years, uh, the last few months, where they started buying corporate bonds. They essentially uh, were bailing out U.S. companies, and, and that's been happening in other parts of the world for some time, especially in Europe. But that was a first, uh, at least in, in Japan, in, in a long time, a first in the U.S. And that really says a lot. I mean, the U.S. is currently sitting at somewhere around $92 trillion of national debt with a, a, an annual GDP of somewhere under $20 trillion. So just think of the ratio there of the amount of leveraging that happens. And there's a really interesting thing, and I'm going to go into a little detail here for a second, but this is something that I haven't seen many economists actually address. The when the Fed does what it does right now, or the Reserve Bank of Australia um, creates money by buying government bonds, government treasuries, these sorts of things, it introduces new money into the system, right? So extra numbers get added into, uh, into the bank accounts of the government or the corporations, wherever they buy the bonds from. Um, and so we get more money in the overall system. And we have an equivalent debt that needs to be repaid. But when there is a purchasing of bonds, which happened over the last few years, not by the Fed, but by others. Um, when the average investor or accredited investor buys a bond, it's really interesting because it's like me, Cam, lending you some money, right? Let's say I lend you $1,000, you owe me $1,000. No new money got created. So there's been a huge amount of bond buying over the last uh, few decades in the US because companies have essentially been underwater. They've been in a lot of what they call zombie companies for a reason, right? That they're just sort of appearing like they're alive. And the reality has been that they've been racking up a lot of debt, but the money supply has not been increasing simultaneously. Now, here's the dilemma. What do you need in order to pay down debt? You need money. If debt's been increasing, which it's now at $258 trillion, and now we've got global GDP decreasing, where the heck is the money going to come from for people to pay down the debts? The answer so far has been the central banks of the world putting more money into the system. Now, this is very problematic in the long run for a country like the US, which is the reserve currency uh, globally, when, and this is basic uh, inflationary understanding, whenever you put more money into the system, you're devaluing your dollar. And we're already seeing uh, this in the last few months. I mean, gold hitting a record high. And so there's some serious long-term macro implications here. And the amount of debt that keeps growing 
as a byproduct of a capitalist system is what's going to ultimately lead to the collapse of America. It's not going to be presidential. It's not going to be what happens as of November or January of these coming uh, few months. It's not going to be <clears throat> even unemployment. It's going to be over the next 12 to 24 months when the companies have the taps turned off in terms of there being an inability, either a, a lack of um, acceptance from certain politicians to in continuously raise the ceiling of the amount of debt, or the banks are going to say we won't lend any further because, again, there's going to be a stop of the backstop from the Fed. At some point, the tap is going to turn off. The investment interest is going to turn off. Overinflated asset markets are going to, that bubble is going to pop. I mean, it's just unbelievable that we're hitting almost record highs of a stock market in a time where we've seen such massive GDP contractions. Um, but it's also a byproduct of a capitalist system that assets will always inflate in that system because people are looking for where to invest, right? So ultimately, the short answer is there's no way out of this dilemma mathematically that I can see. And it's going to be a long, long road of repair and recovery. And I, my hope is that enough people are able to make the connection between capitalism and the collapse rather than what I fear, which is that the connection is going to be, oh, it was this scapegoat. It was this person's fault. It was this party's fault. It was this reason. And it really very clearly is, it's a systemic reason that's been in the works for many, many, many decades. Yeah, the whole thing with modern monetary theory, I've been trying to get my head around it for the last six months and we've done some shows about it on this channel and, and I've done some shows on my investing channel about it as well. I mean, my understanding is that, you know, one interpretation of modern monetary theory or, or magic monetary theory is that uh, those debts don't need to get paid back. If, if the Federal Reserve or the Reserve Bank is uh, creating the cash to buy these bonds, in theory, they don't need to be paid back. They can just carry it indefinitely, which means more and more money can keep pouring into the system. And what we, we haven't seen it resulting in inflation in the US, I mean, the US started dealing in MMT around about the time of the global financial crisis in 2008, right? And they haven't seen inflation because a lot of that money, as I understand it, <clears throat> didn't make its way into the hands of the people. You get inflation when the people get their hands on the money and you know they start buying commodities and the prices of those commodities go up over time. What's been happening in the US, and I think the same is true to various extents in Europe and Japan who have been doing it a lot longer, is that the money sort of went from the reserve banks to corporations and then the corporations have just held onto it, used it for stock buybacks and things like that uh, to pay off other debts. Um, but it, it actually hasn't made its way down into the people and so we've seen no inflation. If we can continue to see, uh, and, and like it hasn't made its way into full unemployment in the US either, despite the... Uh, numbers that the Trump administration have been touting for the last few years. Again, my understanding is that your true unemployment numbers are much like ours are here. Like we had an official unemployment number, even late last year, that I think was up around five or 6% uh, 
but the underemployment number, if you looked at all the people that were driving Uber because they couldn't get a job or they were doing part of the gig economy because they couldn't get a full-time job. So they're doing 20 hours or 30 hours or something like that, something below full-time employment. Um, they're technically part of the unemployed, but they've managed to create some sort of an income through the gig economy. If you combine the underemployment number with the unemployment number in this country, even this is before COVID, I think we were up around 15%. Right. We had, we had Alan, Alan Kohler, um, who you may know or recall of one of Australia's most prominent finance journalists. Um, we had him on the show uh, on our investing show last year, late last year. And he was giving us this argument that actually our real unemployment number, which was, was 15%, which is recession territory. And that was before COVID hit. Right. But again, you know, the, the official reporting from our government here was that unemployment was low and everything was great. But when you, when you scratch the surface of the numbers <clears throat> actually wasn't that good at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to, to build on that, it shocked me a decade ago when I first discovered that, the technical definition of unemployed, uh, sorry, of employment is one hour of work paid per week. If you, right. if, you if you're employed for an hour of work, you you're you are technically employed. employed, right? I mean, so talk about the uh, underemployment problem. Um, we, you're absolutely right, and and there's also, of course, the piece that that capitalism has squeezed the average working family. Um, from a single uh, breadwinner to to a dual breadwinner uh, requirement in homes where there are still two uh, two parents and and so we've seen the opposite of the promise right the promise was all of this was going to lead to more leisure time it was going to lead to greater health and well-being and mm. there's a very simple reason it hasn't cam it's that Whenever you have the private individual ownership over the means of production, and I'm not going full bore uh, Marxist here because I'm going to explain a little difference on that in just a second. But whenever that happens, you're going to see money accumulate. And the key piece that got missed is you're going to see debt accumulate elsewhere. And so households, governments, corporations all around the world are just suffering from being underwhelmed with debt. And that's the piece that never gets addressed. Like let's, let's take the biggest thing that gets put out there in terms of uh, the benefits of, of capitalism. Right. And, and, uh, and obviously China is an interesting country in terms of its political structure, but for all intents and purposes um, in the economic sphere, it's been operating in a, in a capitalist uh, way, certainly since it opened up um, a while back. And so if you were to, to be the biggest pro, uh, pro-capitalist uh, that I know of with sort of an ethical conscience, you're going to point to something and say, look at the amount of people that were brought out of poverty in China. Right? Mm-hmm. And the thing, there's two parts that get missed in that. Number one, let's talk about debt. I want to know when you're talking about rising incomes or rising wealth, I want to look at the debt chart, which never gets mentioned in the same sentence. And the second is, I want to know, has your measure of poverty 
changed over those years? Is it inflation adjusted? Because the reality is the World Bank measures on poverty have not changed. And if you look at the data, and Jason Hickel's done some incredible research on this, um, you'll see that if we actually adjusted for inflation, uh, the, the $2 a day mark that we get called on uh, all the time, there's actually more people living in poverty now than there were years back. And obviously the population's grown, but this this notion of a success story of capitalism just needs to be blown out of the water. I mean, talk about BS. Yes, there've been incredible advances uh, as a result of, of capitalism. Yes, there's been wonderful um, raises in, in uh, living standards in places and a democratization that's been associated with aspects of that. But I'm interested in what's been hidden through that, mm. right? What's been obfuscated in that evolution? And, and the reason I said I'm not, going full bore Marxist here is because one of the things that's been hidden that's really exciting, you asked like, is there hope? Is there sort of some system that, that might emerge out of this in the US and elsewhere? The greatest success story, in my opinion, is something that's been emerging right before our eyes, but we've, we, have, we haven't seen it. And that is what's happened in the nonprofit sector globally. 30 years ago, the average nonprofit, which considered through a capitalistic lens was, you know, the little, the little brother or sister that, uh, that fills the gaps for, you know, the big parents playing around in the state versus market and that market being a for-profit, you know, company market. There's, there's your nonprofits over here that, uh, that sort of um, lap up the, or, or help, help clean up the mess that gets created at the top here, right? Well, what's interesting is that nonprofits got sick and tired of relying on philanthropy and governments changing and their money getting pulled out from underneath them. And so over the last 30 years, they went into business. And in doing so, they started to take on the for-profit businesses. Um, but because you've got for-profit CEOs who still think of them as nonprofits, they still struggle to understand that they're in competition with them. Well, what my colleague Jen Hinton and I have been documenting is that if you expand that model of nonprofit out to not-for-profit, which means any business that doesn't um, that generates more than 50% of its uh, income from selling goods and services, so it's really a business, and is not uh, doesn't have any private individual owners, which is what every nonprofit in Australia looks like that's a business. It doesn't have any individual owners. Um, when you expand that definition out, you get credit unions, you get mutual insurance companies, uh, a lot of which exist in Australia, both of those. Um, I'm thinking Bank Australia, for example, uh, is, is, is an example of that. Um, you get the foundation-owned businesses um, like IKEA and Bosch, the engineering company. I mean, these massive companies that are without private individual ownership. Bosch has a small percentage of family owners, but largely it's a not-for-profit business. You get other forms of consumer cooperative like Barcelona Football Club. Um, you get uh, uh, non-profit organizations that run business activities like Mozilla Firefox. Um, and then you have state-owned enterprises, which putting aside what we might think about uh, Saudi Arabia and its government policies for a second, the world's most profitable company is not-for-profit. It's Saudi Aramco, the state oil and gas, which provides the vast majority of, of that government's public expenditure in terms of its budget. It comes from a state-owned enterprise. What Jen Hinton and I found was that almost 20% of global GDP 
comes from these not-for-profit forms of business that are not considered in the capitalist, communist conversation, market state, you know, regulatory free market conversation at all, but they've been an increasingly important player and we believe are increasingly outcompeting because of a whole range of competitive advantages and actually paving a path beyond capitalism. Maybe you're going to have to go through a couple of collapses first, but there's an opportunity for us to have a system where, as you said, people's needs are met because businesses are driven by purpose, where money circulates so debts can be paid down as, it's, as, as needed, so the economy can expand or contract based on uh, people's needs, not individual greed, and where the environment, therefore, is a beneficiary because we're not driven by the insatiable capitalist-dependent drive of more, 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 and we actually can have a society of enough where that's an underlying philosophy and we can finally see all the benefits associated with technological innovation being reaped by the general population rather than flowing into the back pocket financially of uh, the investors and the, the founders. So what's the path forwards to get to a world of more not-for-profits from where we are today or where the United States is today, Donnie? It's really clear. The number one thing to do is to look around and find out what businesses that you currently engage with are legally. Are they not-for-profit or are they for-profit? Do you bank with a company that has shareholders all around the world that you, they don't even know who they are? Or do you bank with a company which is a member-driven bank where all of the profits go back into um, providing lower interest rates and, uh, sorry, higher interest rates on deposits and lower interest rates on loans? Do you bake at, uh, uh, sorry, do you visit the local bakery um, that is either a small business uh, or a not-for-profit bakery, or are you going to the, uh, the, the chain that is part of that international or national conglomerate? So I mean, this is the big thing, and it's, it's pretty obvious, Cam. It's like we have huge economic agency, even those of us who are in low-income situations. Because if you think about it, especially in a country like Australia, the average person, I don't have an exact stat on this, but my guess is the average person, whether it's through forms of welfare or their own uh, wage labor or entrepreneurial pursuits, is most likely going to make a million dollar plus of decisions throughout their life in terms of the allocation of, of their money. Now, if I was to say, Cam, what are you going to do with a million dollars in terms of funding a nonprofit? A million dollars can do a lot uh, in terms of an endowment. So, I'm interested in us thinking about moving our money in ways that actually we see it as economic power and political power, which it is. We've seen this historically where people get together and, uh, and put pressure on uh, whether it's the superannuation companies in Australia or the banks or elsewhere. Um, I think a lot of that's been caught up in this sort of shareholder activism around climate change that to me has been questionable in terms of its successes. Um, but I'm more interested in what can we do to bring our money local, ensure that we address what's called the leaky bucket syndrome, which, you know, if you think of the community that you live in, in, uh, in Brisbane, how much of the money stays in that community in terms of local business versus how much of it is zipping out to Amazon, to Netflix, to whomever the businesses are that people are subscribing to. And 
at our institute, what we do is we run processes called offers and needs markets online and in person where we connect people in communities uh, and remind them that you've got a ton of stuff, not just to the physical stuff, which has been part of that sharing economy that we've seen sort of burgeon and then be co-opted by capitalism over the last 10 years. But, but in terms of the passions you have, Cam, the passions I have, the knowledge, the skills, the resources, the opportunities we, we can share with each other, that's a huge ability for us to actually take economic agency and say, right, if we lived next door to each other and we actually gave a shit about each other, what would we do that could actually mean that our local economy would benefit to the extent that the capitalist system, which is extracting money from communities all the time, would actually suffer in a way that we could see that shift emerge. So moving your money, thinking about what businesses are, moving your money, thinking about, uh, about how you can volunteer for not-for-profit organizations that have business models. So actually going as a volunteer to a nonprofit and saying, hey, what's your business model? And if they say, we don't have one, say, oh, have you thought about doing that? Have you thought about weaning yourself off philanthropy um, or making philanthropy a smaller part of your, uh, of your activity? And, uh, and I think that's, that to me is a clear path and it's something that's been part of what's called the solidarity economy for a long time. And Australia's got a good track record of this. I mean, this is to me what replaces the, 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 the decline of the union movement is we go one step further and, and forget political rights so much at the centre and say, look, let's look at economic collectivism and what we can do together that will result then in political, um, shared political rights. Look, I, I admire the vision uh, and it sounds very exciting, but when I look at the realities on the ground of where let's just keep talking about the United States, where that is today, you've in order to get more people to execute on the sort of vision that you're talking about, it's going to require a massive education awareness campaign, behavioral change campaign, which is we know very difficult. Um, the climate environmental movement, the climate change movement have been trying to get people to use less water and, you know, bloody recycle their rubbish and all this sort of stuff for decades. And it's very, very slow going. Is there time to change the behavior of enough Americans quickly? Uh, uh, you know, can you do it fast enough to prevent the collapse of the society over there? I mean, I just, uh, the my read on where the United States is today is the level of um, divisiveness in the country, the anger. And we did some shows on this channel a few months ago when the riots were breaking out. And um, one of the things that Chrissy pointed out, my wife, um, after I'd done a couple of these shows, is there's there's a... Um, just a, a real anger in America that she thinks comes from the idea of rights. You, you mentioned sort of the history of the United States and the constitution and the founding fathers and all of that kind of idea about you know, the bill of rights and their emotional attachment to that. Um, this, this um, gap yeah, the way I've come to think of it is that Americans have been told their entire lives that they're the greatest people on earth, 
um, greatest people that have ever been. They are the best. They deserve the best because they're Americans. Uh, but the reality is that the vast majority of them aren't getting the benefits of America's uh, economic hegemony. Um, they're, you know, doing it tough, working hard, middle class has been eroded, incomes have been stagnant, all this kind of stuff. No health care, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so there is, uh, there is an anger there. If you've been told your whole life that you deserve to have the best and you don't, there is uh, uh, an anger and then where that, how that culminates differs. Some people, that they become angry conservatives. Some people become angry Democrats, progressives in their view. Um, but just there's just this, I get the sense of anger out of Americans that I don't think is the same in Australia. I don't think Australians are generally that angry at each other. There are on the fringes, if you read the comment sections of uh, a News Corp paper or even a Fairfax paper, there's always bunch of uh, uh, ranty people in the comment sections, the, the Alan Jones talkback uh, type demo. But generally speaking, I don't think Australians are angry at each other um, over political positions. We get along quite well. Anyway, my point is that I think America is at this tipping point with so much anger, divisiveness. Um, I like even let's, let's, the, like the, the different scenarios that are going to play out with the presidential elections in November. If Trump manages somehow to win again, I mean, the, uh, um, the right are, are going to get even more emboldened than they have been in the last three and a half years. The left are going to be more hysterical and furious and, uh, uh, uh suicidal than they have been in the last few years. If on the other hand, Trump loses and Biden wins, you're going to see the reverse of that situation. I think you're going to see uh, the left go back into complacency like they were during the Obama years where they didn't feel the need to, for any systemic change, because it's all good. We've got a black Democrat president. Um, everything's good now. We don't need to actually do anything. Uh, whereas the right just became crazier and crazier and more extremist during that period. And of course, the other scenario is Trump loses and refuses to leave or Trump, you know, delays the election somehow, declares martial law, all of those quite possible and feasible uh, extreme things that, that could happen. Um, I, I, I just see, it seems to me that America's on the verge of a civil war like an actual civil war. It's, it's not going to, I'm actually surprised it hasn't broken out during the riots and COVID. It just seems to me like it's a tinderbox. It's not going to take much to set it off and it'll be uh, mano a mano. Um, I just wonder if you're, there is enough time left for your vision of uh, not for profit, peace, love and harmony to, get a chance to come to fruition before the place explodes. Well, Ken, you're absolutely right, I think, in your analysis of what's happening. And if you even go back four years, we could have said the same thing. Irrespective of the election outcome, there was going to be an increasing divide, right? If Hillary Clinton had won, the, the whole lock her up uh, crowd would have been emboldened 
and Trump won and a whole lot of people, there was immediately the women's march, right? So uh, the trajectory here is unavoidable, unavoidable, absolutely. Uh, so when I talk about the evolution of a system, and we made a very conscious decision about four years ago with the Institute to reorient from trying to push for a transition to happen from capitalism to a post-capitalist system to instead seeking to plant the seeds of two things. One, the connection between the capitalist growth imperative and collapse. And two, the connection between a not-for-profit monetary circulatory system and health such that at some point in the future, and I mentioned earlier, we predict there's probably going to be a couple of collapses here, right? A couple of waves of collapse. Um, and when I say collapse, I'm talking here in particular about debt um, related collapse in the financial system in order to get, I mean, we talk 2050, 2050 is the earliest point to be talking about any kind of post-capitalist system. So you're, you're doing the groundwork for what comes next after the collapse then. Exactly. And we're doing it with the, right. with the belief that the data on movement change is accurate. Those analyses that say 3% of a population is what you need to have the tipping point on any social systems change. And it's interesting, Jen Hinton and I did analysis uh, building on the work of Demela Meadows, Ken Wilbur and others looking at systems change. And we came up with what we call the six layers method. And essentially, if you look at any social system and you say, what would it take for it to change? There's these six layers we look at from the behaviors, the value, uh, sorry, the, um, the, the feelings, the conditions, the, uh, the frameworks, the values, the, the constructs, all of these different layers of a system, right? From the story all the way down to how it actually plays out in terms of people's um, decisions that they make in terms of their behaviors. And what we found is, that for a system to change, you have to have a critical mass at each layer of the system. And there has to be a story of an alternative that has reached a critical mass in terms of an interest, but there has to also be the values aligned and there has to be the frameworks for how to actually play that out. And we would argue that the number one thing that's been holding back systems change in this world right now is that no one has come up with an effective alternative beyond capitalism. No one, zero, like, and I mean, that's a bold statement to make because many, 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 many people have, have had a crack at it. But here's the reason I'm, I'm so confident in what we're putting forward as an alternative that I think is going to gain traction in the future. There's two reasons. One is, and this might be a, a little interesting thing for people listening in on this. Um, in fact, Cam, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to just take a moment to grab a piece of paper um, if you've got one handy and if you don't, no, no paper. All right. Well, I'll just talk paper? you through what this would be. Paper. What's that? Um, it's we ask an iPad. Let's just do it imaginarily then if you, um, if you without paper and, uh, and no, so I can, we, I can, all right. All right. Do digital, so we do digital paper if it doesn't we get, we get people to draw a, uh, a line down the middle of the page, separate it from right and left. In the top right, we say, write the word future. And in the top mm -hmm. left, write the word present. Mm -hmm. And we then say, all right, jumping over to the right-hand side, imagine a future that's working for everyone, people and mm -hmm. planet, right? Actually, mm -hmm. actually imagine it. And then mm -hmm. 
drop down into your body. How does it feel? And once you've connected with how it actually feels in that future, um, draw a symbol or shape without lifting your pen that represents how it feels in that economy. Draw a symbol or shape without lifting your pen for how it feels. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm. Once you've done that, mm. we move over to the left-hand side. Mm -hmm. Say, now draw something, a symbol or a shape without lifting a pen that represents how the current economy feels. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the thing. We've done this experiment all around the world with people of every political back. It was interesting you mentioned the US, right, and the difference between the divide that's occurring uh, in this country. We've done this across political divisions, age, gender, religious background, ideological background. Everyone around the world draws one of four things for the future and one of four things for the present. Mm -hmm. They always draw either a circle, a wave sign or an infinity symbol, a spiral or a heart for the future. Mm -hmm. And for the present, they always draw a jagged line, a mm -hmm. downward arrow, a triangle or a mess of lines. Hard to see what Cam is He's got a heart there. So, he, yep. And... Looks like a fire on the left-hand side. <laughs> a fire? That's what it's supposed to be. Isn't it? Yeah, right. just a, a fire, a, a dumper fire. What do you call right. it? A dumpster fire. Yeah. Yep. Dumpster fire, yeah. <laughs> so interestingly, no one ever, and we, I've done this with Fortune 500 CEOs, right? Um, and it's, sort yeah. of, you know, it's a touchy-feely kind of thing to be doing with, uh, with, with these CEOs. The point of all this is, Cam, Deep down, we all know that the future's got to be circular. It's got to have that circulation. You drew a heart, which represents a whole lot of different things. The heart's the most circulatory part in the body. And the reality is no one anywhere in the world draws anything circular for the present. Even if they're a big uh, free market advocate and think that there's goods and, uh, and resources that circulate well in a capitalist system. What does that tell you? That tells me that we actually all can agree on what needs to happen on the level of frameworks, going back to the six layers, and that the system that we need, the framework we need, has to be circulatory. Everything that thrives has a circulatory mechanism in it, whether it's our blood in our body and oxygen that circulates, and if it doesn't, we get necrosis, whether it's nitrogen in our ec ecology, and without that, we have big problems. And so the thing in our system that needs to circulate is money. How do you build a system of circulation based on money that's different to all the proposals that people put together before? You look to what things in our current economy already circulate money. And here is the best part of it. Do you know where the greatest incidence of credit union membership, which is not-for-profit banking in the US is? It's in rural America. That's also where the highest incidence of cooperative utilities is, is in rural America. You can have conversations that play into the values around rights in terms of cooperative ownership where people don't even realize you're talking about a, a system beyond capitalism because they're looking at it from the personal benefit of, oh yeah, my rural co-op, I got low rates with them. My mutual insurance company, they give me the best mm -hmm. rate. Why? because they run on better profit margins because they don't have shareholders. So mm. while I've just taken you on a bit of a journey that went out a little, mm. I'm coming back to this thing of there's a future system that's a market economy, not a communist system, 
not a post-market system, not a cryptocurrency-based system. It's a system where everything that you and I see in your bedroom right now, in your, uh, in your house, in your street, in your, uh, in your world, is similar. We still have banking. We still have uh, structures. We still have a legal system. We still have uh, money. All of these things mm. exist. We still have the corporation. We still have limited liability. We still have advertising. But in a not-for-profit market system, money circulates. And when money circulates, everything changes because power happens differently. Resources flow differently. And you can finally see a system where needs are met um, in ways that you, 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 you named it. You said there's so much anger in this country. And the reason there's so much anger is because of exactly what else you said, which is the dream people have been sold is so far from their realities. The amount of trailer parks that exist in my small town, one of the wealthiest towns in Oregon, we have at least six trailer parks in this community. The wealth disparity is so big, and that's one of the differences between the US and Australia, right? The relative inequality is so dramatic, and all of the studies you'll see will show that it's actually relative inequality. It's what you think you are in relation to others that really matters even more than actual uh, poverty past a certain point. So what's been stoked in this country is a situation where people say, I want to get like that. And the reality is the economic mobility is so small and so minimal over a lifetime mm. of an individual that of course it's going to lead to all sorts of political divisions, just like it did in the 1920s in, uh, in, in Germany and elsewhere in the world. The answer to that is get the money circulating. I don't think the answer to that is modern monetary theory because it doesn't address the capitalist accumulation uh, that occurs within our current economic system. You have to have a framework on which money naturally circulates. And we've already got a although, business model for that. Although, I mean, one of the potential ways that MMT could play out is all of this money that is created by the reserve banking system, some of it, and that's and the crazy thing is this is already happening, right, in the United States and here, um, is it just gets given to the people as a universal basic income. To the, here we're calling it the job keeper payment. Mm -hmm. Government is writing people a check every month to... Uh, keep them out of uh, complete poverty while they don't have a job to go to. Uh, in the US, I don't know what they're calling it over there, but it's some sort of a COVID bailout, right? A scenario where governments are just printing money and giving it to the people so they can, uh, you know, survive. Well, here's the thing. That's a, let's say, typically, a you know, like a very neo-Keynesian approach, a very um, leftist kind of approach, right, that's being taken up by right-wing governments as a result of the, the requirements of the circumstances they're in. So here's the thing. A free market approach, the opposite of that, right, which says don't have that kind of bailout, don't have unemployment systems, uh, let things crash. A fully free market approach sees money accumulate faster. That's true. Right? You, if you just let, if there was no regulation in the system, you know, if the barbarians were uh, released, then we would see probably faster inequality rise. However, the approach that's being taken right now sees that extraction of money from the general circulation 
still happen. It's just hidden better. There's still an accumulation that's happening. I mean, in fact, not even that uh, hidden. We've had $637 billion that's been transferred to billionaires through this crisis, in large part because governments have, through political capture, been without any real accountability, uh, mm. paying money to their mates. So if mm -hmm. you can tell me how universal basic income gets around capitalist accumulation and therefore the problem of debt accumulating elsewhere, I am all ears, but I am yet to see. Well, in, in theory, you just, in theory, you just, uh, you know, have going. some sort of, <laughs> no, in theory you have some sort of uh, regulatory mechanism that works, which is hard to imagine how that uh, happens in the first place that prevents that kind of wealth transfer from happening into the pockets of the already rich and, but continuing the UBI for everybody else. But the problem, and this is what my book talks about, the problem with uh, any system, and this is true of a capitalist system or a socialist system or any other kind of system. The uh, problem in my mind is um, if psychopaths are able to get themselves into the executive seats of the system, whatever it may be, they're going to manipulate it for their own benefit. And, sure, and, sure. and by definition, they don't have empathy or very low levels of empathy. Um, so they don't give a shit. So if they're in control of the legal system, the, um, the, the uh, political system, the legislature, then uh, they're always going to spin it into something that looks after them and their mates. Um, that's just I, the nature. Of I agree, but I want to go back to something you said here, because I think, I hope there's a nugget here for listeners about something that doesn't get much airplay. You said something really interesting. You said, okay, in theory, there could be a regulatory system that could, and it's hard to imagine. You said, I think what that could look like that could essentially keep wealth accumulation in check. But let's just pause for a second and think about what are the ways that money accumulates, right? It's largely rents on land and uh, rents on labor in terms of profits being pulled out for shareholders through uh, corporate entities, right? That's the primary way that money accumulates. Well, how does it go back? It goes back through wages and philanthropy and taxation. Any regulatory approach that would see the amount of money that accumulates to a capitalist investor or a, uh, an entrepreneur who's embedded in a company at the same rate that it had to go back, Cam. So let's say you make a million dollars and the money's going back, the whole million dollars goes back through philanthropy, taxation and wages to the point that there is a net zero outcome in terms of accumulation. That's not capitalism. That, that, that is no longer a capitalist system. The whole point of capitalism is that you have an incentive to gain a return on your investment that's larger than your investment. So this is why at the end of the day, you could have a heavily regulated system that had you know, very high tax levels and a very philanthropic community, but you're still going to see the accumulation of liquid money, which is what happens. People invest their money, et cetera. But it's at the end of the day, wealthy people want to keep more and more of their money as a percentage uh, they might keep the percentage the same, but they're going to keep more money in bank accounts as their wealth grows. That's, that's a conservative position that they constantly take. 
which is like, okay, I'm going to take 14% of my, my overall net wealth is going to be in liquid money so that if I need to, I can buy another company or I can get out of Dodge or whatever it is. The point being here, even under MMT, is that money in any capitalist system has to accumulate no matter how well regulated it is. And that means the debt has to accumulate elsewhere. And yes, it can accumulate with a central bank off the books, um, so to speak. But the realities is there are limitations to the amount and of, of that. And the MMT theorists constantly talk about using taxation as a means to um, take the heat out of the economy. But the reality is if money keeps accumulating, you can't tax enough to ensure that the money circulates again. And that's the piece that no one has been able to address and why there's no future for capitalism that's sustainable. Well, Donnie, we should probably wrap this up, um, but I think this is just the beginning of an ongoing conversation we have. I love what you're doing. I love the fact that you're thinking. And I think something you said earlier really resonated with me. Nobody is out there articulating what a, uh, a non-capitalist story looks like successfully. Um, you know, I think that was has been one of the major problems with uh, Marxism and its children over the last 150 years. Uh, no one came up with a very successful narrative that they could communicate. Uh, and on the contrary, you know, a lot of the countries like Russia, China, uh, that tried to... Uh, 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 take the, uh, the, the basics of Marxism and use it to rapidly industrialize their countries from a sort of semi-feudal state into a modern industrial nation within five or 10 years in order to, to protect themselves against external forces. Um, brought upon themselves massive amounts of problems. And then that became the narrative in the West as we'll see, that's what happens if you try and do something different. Um, so we do desperately need a new story and you seem to be uh, someone that has one to articulate. So I would love to uh, talk with you more about how we package that up and uh, talk, get people talking about it. What does this story look like? How do we teach a new generation of kids? What the world can look like um but uh, i guess the point of this show was really is the is the united states going to collapse and i think we both agree that it is that's inevitable yeah yeah i think that uh are you going to come home donnie i i'm going to stick it out here i think i i've, I've embedded myself in this community and uh look th th there's one thing more to say cam here and that is that the US, for all its failings, has an incredible thing going for it in terms of giving people their five minutes. And I've found that the, you know, the ironic receptivity is here in the belly of the beast, people are interested in talking post-capitalism, including senior executives um, of big companies. And so I'm going to stick it out here, I think, uh, or at least continue this institute's work in this country because um, we're planting seeds for, uh, for coming out of the ashes, as I said in that blog post. Wow. Well, that's admirable. Um, thanks, mate. Liz, great to, great to chat with you again. I can't believe it's been so many years since we've talked. Um, 
but uh, let's let's keep the dialogue going and think about other things that we can do. I just made a I made a film earlier this year. Well, finished it earlier this year too. My first documentary, and I'm planning on some more. So, you know, I, I'm really interested in how we do a you know a, maybe a film about this. Um, taking a lot of these examples and this vision that you've talked about and finding a way to articulate it as some sort of a film. Sounds good. Mm. Okay. All right, my friend. Thanks, Donnie. Enjoy the rest of your night. You too. See you, buddy.